This is Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from each coast, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Everything in life is wonderful, and then one day, somebody comes up and tells a lie on you, and you end up in jail. I was in shock because I got found guilty. Sentenced to life in prison. Things in prison you could never want to know. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you were a police officer, or a United States Marine, or a SEALS Roebuck salesman. It can happen to anybody, and it did. Now, through DNA, we have hard evidence that there is a lot more mistakes being made than we ever expected. I told Mr. Marr how sorry I was that I had been involved in his prosecution, and I asked him to forgive me. It's finally over. It's been 19 years. What now? Go home. Hallelujah! Praise God! He's free. He's free. Oh, honey. Now you can live again. capital system is haunted by the demon of air. I spent 23 years on death row for a murder I didn't commit. I did 19 years, 2 months, and 29 days. I was given $5.37 by the state of Pennsylvania and let loose. My whole belief was shattered about the justice system. Now, the government doesn't know an apology to anybody about that. This is just one of those horrible, horrible things. Welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. It's January 27th, 2006. Uh, I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. I publish a blog called May It Please the Court, Bob. And I write uh, a couple of blogs, one called Media Law, one called Law Sites, both at LegalLine.com. Craig. And in case you missed our last show, Predictions in Legal News for 2006, you can check it out on the Legal Talk Network website, along with all of our other shows back through September of last year. But the film clip that you were just listening to is called After, Inno- After Innocence. It was directed by Jessica Sanders and Mark Simon. After Innocence tells the dramatic and compelling story of the exonerated, rather innocent, wrongfully imprisoned men for decades and then released after DNA proved their in- innocence. The topic of our program today, we'll look at the uh, reopening of criminal cases uh, based on DNA evidence. Uh, Many convictions and acquittals are being reexamined because the DNA testing wasn't available uh, at the time of the original trial, uh, but modern uh, technological developments have uh, have, uh, brought some of these cases back to the forefront. Well, just this week, Bob, on Monday morning, a Florida man was released from jail because of DNA evidence. Judge freed 45-year-old Alan Kratzer after DNA testing and other evidence to convince the prosecutors he wasn't involved in the 1981 armed robbery and rapes that led to his 130-year prison sentence. Kratzer said, quote, it's been a long time coming. Thank God for this day. That's right. And earlier this month, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments uh, in the case of Paul House. It was the first uh, I believe it was the first appeal they've had uh, involving DNA evidence. Uh, Paul House is convicted of rape and murder in Utah, and uh, DNA testing later showed that, uh, as I understand it, that that semen samples that were found were not his. 
uh, and he's trying to get his uh, conviction reopened. There's also another DNA case that took place earlier this month in Virginia. Mark Warner, the governor of the state, ordered DNA testing in the case of Roger Coleman, a man executed in 1992 for murder and rape. The governor wanted to see whether Coleman was wrongfully put to death. But in this case, the DNA evidence actually proved he was guilty. So DNA evidence can actually prove guilt or innocence, and it's been an integral part recently in proving that someone is innocent and reversing convictions. There's a, an organization that probably many of our listeners have heard of. It's, it's called the Innocent, the Innocence Project. It's it's uh, dedicated to uh, 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 exonerating uh, convicted criminals based on DNA evidence. It's a nonprofit legal clinic founded in 1992 by Barry Sheck uh, and Peter Newfeld. Many many remember Barry Sheck from his role in the O.J. Simpson case. Uh, the Innocence Project uses post conviction DNA evidence to free. Uh, uh, those who were wrongfully convicted. It also develops and implements law reforms to prevent wrongful convictions. So far, the Innocence Project has freed 172 wrongfully convicted men and women. So the question today is, uh, what do we think about this? Should we be reopening cases with DNA evidence, or should we accept convictions and uh, throw away the key, so to speak? Well, we're going to get those questions answered, Bob, with two of our guests. Let me introduce the first one. Today uh, with us is attorney Robert Feldman. Rob is a partner with the Boston law firm of Birnbaum and Godkin. He's also one of the founders of the New England Innocence Project. Mr. Feldman represents wrongly convicted individuals who are seeking compensation for false conviction and imprisonment. His practice also focuses on civil business litigation with clients ranging from large public companies to businesses and individuals. Welcome to the show, Rob. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Greg, Craig, and Bob. And also joining us today is uh, Attorney Josh Marquis. Josh uh, Marquis has been District Attorney of Clatsop County in Astoria, Oregon, uh, since 1994. He's currently Vice President of the National District Attorneys Association and a member of the group's governing executive committee. He's a former president of the Oregon District uh, Attorneys Association and has served on the board of directors there since 1997. He's also a frequent guest on national radio and television programs discussing criminal justice and has written extensively on capital punishment and debated the subject from Oregon to Mexico to Brussels. Welcome, Josh Marquis, to the show. Thank you. I hope we can expand it beyond just the, the Innocence Project is trying to get innocent people off and prosecutors are blocking it because it's a little more nuanced than that. And we can. And Ro- Josh, be- or Josh, before the show started, you said you thought you might be outgunned, but uh, I can assure you that I was a volunteer DA my first couple of years practicing law, so I, I think we're going to be in good stead here. Okay. So... Rob, let's start. Uh, Josh, let's start out with you. Um, what what are the nuances that you you've identified? Well, I think since this is a, a show, I think that people who are lawyers who are interested in the law will listen to. I think it's important to remember what the ethical duties of lawyer of prosecutors and defense attorneys are. Um, the, the, and I've been a defense attorney, although most of my time is spent has been as a prosecutor. A defense attorney's job is to represent their client's interests zealously, without regard to whether they're innocent or guilty. And I'm sure that any of those of you who practice law would concede that if you sit around waiting for innocent clients to represent, and those are the only people you represent, you're going to starve to death because the vast, overwhelming, extraordinary majority of people who end up getting through the system are either guilty of exactly what they're charged with or, if not, probably a lesser degree of it. Now, defense attorneys play an absolutely critical role in our system of making the state prove the case and through that 
conflict, making sure that mistakes don't happen, which they do. The question really, the larger one, is are these problems epidemic or are they episodic? Um, and as a prosecutor, it's my worst nightmare is to convict an innocent person. Um, we, and, and as my ethical duty as a prosecutor is very different than a defense attorney's. Um, I don't, I supervise lawyers that work for me. I don't count how many convictions they have. Um, I, I'm interested in the quality of the work they do. And if they feel uncomfortable about a case in the middle of trial, they have the ability, in fact, the ethical duty to dismiss that case. Um, and so they're, in, in journalism, unfortunately, of course, it's not news how many planes landed safely. It is news when man bites dog. And obviously, when an innocent person is put in prison, or worse yet, on death row, which has happened but far fewer than I think the conventional wisdom would have believed, that is a story, and it should be a story. Uh, but I think also we need to look at the history of DNA, how it came into the courts in the United States, and that was through the efforts of prosecutors who fought tooth and nail in every state to get it up to either Fry or Dobert or some other standard, because uh, it was called junk science by defense lawyers who fought it. it. It is now largely accepted everywhere in the United States. And and I think a lot of defense attorneys, including the people at the Innocence Project, who I know are well-intentioned and, and wanted, you know, they, they want to find people who didn't do it and and exonerate them. And in many cases, when they find those people, their greatest allies are the prosecutors. I don't know if the... I know the gentleman on is from the New England Project, but two of the most famous cases the Innocence Project have is a guy named Eddie Lloyd from Detroit and another one, man named Christopher Ochoa from Texas. They were not DNA cases, but they were exoneration cases. And in both those cases, those exonerations would never have happened but for the active participation and, in fact, even the... the the, the work by the district attorneys in those counties that actually started the ball rolling. Well, there's a obviously a, there's also a big a big difference between innocence being somebody being found innocent and somebody being found not guilty. They're not found innocent in our system. They're found not guilty. But what's what's right. striking about DNA evidence is, is is that it it can actually you know be proof of innocence effectively. In some yeah and and. and in some cases, I mean, the vast, I, I try, still try a lot of cases, and in the vast majority of cases, even murder cases, you don't have DNA, or DNA doesn't answer a question. Um, but yes, it, it, it can definitively answer questions, and as you mentioned in passing, one of, the, one of the cases that has been on the cover of Time magazine and on the front pages of a lot of newspapers for 15 years was the Roger Coleman case. Um, and the claim was that Coleman was a man who went to his death protesting and saying, when, I'm, when you find out I'm innocent, you know, you're all going to realize what a barbaric practice the death penalty is. And a lot of people believed in him. And it turned out that he was... They did, they did DNA testing 15 years after his death and were able to establish that the likelihood of him not being the uh, murder just based on DNA was less than 1 in 19 million. Well, Rob, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the work of the Innocence Project. I know you're affiliated with the New England Innocence Project. Uh, what, are you, what, what is your work and what are you doing? Sure, thanks. Yeah, the, the, the mission of the Innocence Project in New England, and I think this is consistent with the, the Innocence Projects uh, around the country, including the National Project in New York, is really just to take, uh, take cases or look at cases, and we scrutinize cases very carefully to just determine really two simple questions. One, is there DNA evidence? Is there biology that could be tested? You know, is the case so old that all the human biology, if there was any, it was destroyed? Um, so we first look to see if there's any potential for DNA testing. 
If the answer to that question is yes, then the second question is if we test the DNA, if we actually get a, a result based on testing some biology, would would the results be probative of innocence? Or you know, sort of would it exculpate the individual, the defendant? Would it inculpate the defendant? So um, that that's really the, the mission of the project. We don't have, um, in many ways, a larger agenda than that. And, um, you know, I... I I think the spirit of Josh's comments, I think there's a lot I agree with there. And, and first, I should say that, and I'll speak on my own behalf, but I think this is consistent with the, the New England Innocence Project and the Innocence Projects around the country. Um, I mean, everyone appreciates the work law enforcement, police prosecutors do on a daily basis. I mean, you know, every citizen, but, you know, thus, those of us who have done some of this innocence, innocence work very much understand the challenges uh, law enforcement has. Um, I think there's a lot of common ground on this issue in particular. I mean, I really think this is an issue, uh, unlike many issues that uh, that the that the justice system has to wrestle with. I think this is an issue where there's um, really where prosecutors and and those who do this kind of work um, uh, really meet. And what I mean by that is, you know, when an innocent person, and I and I mean someone who is demonstrated beyond all doubt to have been innocent of the crime for which he or she was convicted. When an innocent person goes to jail, um, you, what, you have a couple of problems. One is you have some citizen who's been um, wrongly convicted and serving time for something he or she didn't do. But the other problem is the person who did commit the crime, the perpetrator of that crime, is out somewhere free to commit additional crimes. And that's something that I know uh, Josh and all the good DAs around the country do not want ha- you know, to happen. And uh, you know that, that's why I think this is really an issue where um, while there are perhaps nuances where there's some disagreement, I think on the thrust, the core of this issue, um, there should be, in my judgment, complete agreement. How often? How often are we talking about death row cases here? How often are we talking about death row cases? Meaning, how many exonerated individuals of the 173 have been on death row? Yeah, I don't know the number, but I, my guess is it's something like 10 percent. It may be somewhere around there. Uh, actually, the, the total number is 14 people who were once on death row eventually were exonerated. Five of those people came off death row specifically and solely because DNA evidence proved it. A number of, uh, obviously of the other nine, a number of those had already had their sentences either reduced uh, or commuted, and then further testing showed that they didn't do it. Josh, how is it that the further testing comes into play? Is this test DNA evidence that wasn't available prior to prosecution or DNA itself wasn't being tested? In the vast majority of cases, yes. Um, Coleman's, Roger Coleman's case is a good example. Um, when he committed the murder of Wanda McCoy in 1981, all they had was serology testing, and they were able to say, show that he was within like 2% of the possible, which is by DNA standards nothing. Then after his he was sentenced to death, his lawyer hired um, uh, Dr. Edward Blake, who works a lot with the Innocence Project, is considered one of the best minds in DNA science in the country, who did a test, and this is early DNA, and he was able to say, put it down to two, I think two one-hundredths of a percent, um, or one in five hundred, essentially, that this that, that was it, that he was the guy. But that still wasn't absolutely definitive. So, yeah, we, we, we've gone from basic, uh, and I will, and I'm the gentleman from the Innocence Project is going to know these words better than I because I've only tried a couple DNA-related cases, but it went from what we call DQ-alpha testing to RFLP to PCR to what is now called SDR testing. We're now able, as in the case of uh, a, 
another of the Innocence Project client, a guy named Ricky McGinn, who got a lot, was on the cover of Newsweek magazine in 2000, said, is this man innocent? Um, and the Innocence Project had undertaken his defense and, and asked gov- then-Governor Bush to grant a 30-year reprieve to do further DNA testing to find out whether a spot on the underwear of the victim, Stephanie Flannery, who was his stepdaughter, who... If he had not raped her and only murdered her, he would not be eligible for the death penalty, and he was about to be executed. So the testing was done. And, of course, well, not of course, but the, the, the SDR testing showed conclusively that McGinn was the contributor. And, of course, you never heard about that case because it dropped off the radar very fast. And there are a number of other cases like that. And I'm not suggesting that the Innocence Project is, is doing this in bad faith at all. They're, these folks are very sincere, and, and they're looking, you know, desperately in many cases for those cases where an innocent person um, has um, has been wrongfully accused. However, and the, what, to get away from the areas that we agree on, because uh, this is a law show and there is controversy, is I'd like to know why it is that uh, Barry Sheck and, uh, and, and the other people the Innocence Project have refused to allow those DNA samples of people who have sought to be exonerated to be entered into the CODIS National Data Bank. Um, because one of the ways we prevent wrongful convictions is having as large a database as possible. And as a former defense attorney, I suspect the reason is that um, they don't want the, the, the DNA sample in the database because if they can be made for other crimes that they have not yet been charged with. I suppose it's probably directed to me. Um, you know, I don't know the issue Josh is, is talking about. I'm just not familiar with it. But I can tell you, Josh, uh, and I can tell your listeners, that the way we approach the these cases is we make it clear with any client that, I mean, you know, we don't go searching for these cases. Individuals write to us. And when someone writes and says, you know, I've been wrongly convicted. It was 18 years ago. There may be DNA. Can, can someone look into it? We do. I mean, that's our mission. Um, you know, I want to actually separate out. Uh, there are plenty of advocates out there, defense attorneys, who uh, fulfill their ethical obligations to zealously advocate on behalf of their clients. Um, and there are, I'm sure, at the extreme margin uh, in this area, people who um, are out there to prove their client uh, not guilty or innocent. I, I just want to distinguish those cases from cases uh, that are accepted by an innocence project where. Really, we're not, I mean, we're, we're trying to determine whether DNA will be probative of innocence. We tell our clients, if the DNA comes back, it's going to be shared with the prosecutor. And so if it shows that you're guilty, and believe me, there are cases, and I think the statistics are pretty well known, there are plenty of cases where the test results indicate guilt. Um, we don't view that as a loss. That's, this is not sort of a, a game where we're looking for wins and losses. There's actually, in some ways, a greater good when that happens. I don't mean greater than determining innocence. I just mean that everyone can sleep at night that this is the right person if there was any doubt about that. So what we're really doing is simply saying, I mean, Josh put it, put it a good way. He said, is, you know, the dispute here, is this ep- an epidemic or is it episodic? I, you know, it, it's a good question. I, I I think the better, I mean, the way I look at it is, um, is the system good enough as it is? 
Um, or do these DNA cases show that we can make improvements in the system? And I think maybe that's where Josh and I may have disagreement, but you know, um, I, I don't think that's really debatable. I think we should be striving to make the system better, and I think the, the, what Sheck and Neufeld have done by founding the Innocence Project and what these DNA cases are teaching us is that the system can be made better. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. In fact, I don't think we have a point of disagreement about that. I think it would be towering arrogance of any prosecutor to say that the system is perfect and it doesn't need improvement. It clearly does. The question, and um, I, I'm not getting paid for this, so I'm in on the Thursday, uh, January 26, New York Times lead op-ed I wrote called "The Innocent and the Shammed," and it's about this larger issue about whether or not we really do have an epidemic of wrongful convictions, and if so, what should we do about it? And I think the best analogy probably would be pharmaceuticals, because they can be incredibly beneficial or they can kill people. And there's a, there's a point at which you say, okay, this drug has is, is got so many good benefits, but there's a very tiny number of people for whom it's deadly or very, very, has terrible things. You have to make a decision whether you're going to leave that drug on the market or not. Uh, there's a point at which you say, as we did with drugs like thalidomide, which had caused mutations uh, in pregnant women, that it, it was just not worth it. it. You had to withdraw that drug. On the other hand, you have some incredible drugs that have been made that, that save people's lives, change their lives, that, that are risky for a small number of people. And what you do in those cases is you try to make sure you warn those people. You try to create safeguards. And that's what, a, 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 I think, a sane criminal justice system does. And it's one of the reasons, particularly in death penalty cases, that we, the average wait between um, sentence and execution in the United States is about 12 years. And in my state, it's more like 25 to 30. Um, and part of that is so that these sort of examinations can take place. And one of the things that's highly significant is there has not been, and I think Barry has acknowledged this before, Barry Sheck, that there's not one documented case since the modern institution, reinstitution of the death penalty in Gregg versus Georgia in 1976, where someone who's been proved to be innocent was executed. Now, and that's what everybody was sitting on the edge of their chair for in the Coleman case, because if, if his DNA had not been present, there would have been a very strong argument that Virginia had executed an innocent man. That's a question I'd like to toss out to Rob. Do you think that the Innocence Project eventually will go out of business, so to say, if now the DNA is in place and used in prosecutions regularly? I mean, in some ways, uh, you could say we, we all hope so. Um, and by that, I mean, it, absolutely, uh, police and prosecutors are, are far more, uh, um, have the resources now, um, and, the, and just technology has advanced such that, DNA is used much more often up front, and that's a good thing. I mean, making the system more accurate is something we all want. So um, you'd expect, and, and you know, I don't know so far that whether there are any statistics to bear this out. I don't think there are. But you'd expect that 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, um, there will be far fewer DNA exonerations. But I guess the DNA doesn't always answer the question. I mean, the, the appeal that's, that was argued before the Supreme Court, uh, the, the Sixth Circuit refused to to grant a new trial in that case because although the DNA uh, excluded, uh, seemed to suggest that some of the evidence that used against him may not uh, ha have been uh, appropriate, there, there still was other evidence in the case. And so I guess the question becomes when when does DNA provide enough evidence and what is the, what is the standard that the courts are applying in, in deciding when to reopen a conviction? 
it's it's a really a hard question. I mean, I think what we've been talking about right so far is cases that are sort of clear on their face. Um, and the classic case from a DNA perspective is when you have uh, so, um, oftentimes it's a sexual crime where you have a rape kit, for instance, done, and the only possible perpetrator, uh, the only possible donor of of semen that is um, that is determined to be on the rape kit is from the perpetrator. When that doesn't meet meet the defendant, I don't think in most cases there's any dispute about um, the innocence in that case of of, of the defendant. Um, and then we're talking about the cases where there's clear evidence that the DNA comes back and it confirms guilt. But there are cases in the middle of that, and it does become complicated. I have a good example in Massachusetts, one of my clients who, um, when I first met him, I, I had certain doubts about his innocence because um, there was a fingerprint associated with uh, the crime. There was His thumbprint was, um, the key piece of evidence of trial was that his thumbprint was at the scene. Well, we took the case. I agreed to take the case looking to see whether, because I thought there was a possibility DNA could demonstrate his innocence, notwithstanding the fingerprint. Well, after doing some DNA testing where all the test results came back and indicated that other items handled by the perpetrator um, had DNA of some third person, some other person, and all of these items, the way it worked out, really had to be handled by the perpetrator. And... uh, there was still this conflict about the fingerprint, but ultimately the, the authorities here in Massachusetts retested the fingerprint to determine that it, it, at best a mistake had been made. So it's an example of a case where you wouldn't normally think of it as a DNA case because it was a, it was a shooting. And uh, as Josh mentioned earlier, you know, oftentimes capital cases, murder doesn't necessarily lend itself to DNA testing. But that individual was looking at about 50 more years in prison when he walked out of jail, um, a free man. What is the standard the courts apply in those situations? How do they weigh that evidence? There's really, <clears throat> there's really two things. And I, I must mention in that particular case that initially there was some reluctance to even allow DNA testing. I don't know whether Josh's office has embraced sort of uh, requests for DNA testing and accepts them, sort of um, embraces them, or whether they oppose them. But we, we finally, um, thankfully, had the prosecutor agree to allow testing. The standard, I think, is, it, does the evidence demonstrate innocence? And if so, the person should walk, should not be serving time for something he or she didn't do. Well, if, if the evidence is probative of innocence, if it indicates, if it casts doubt on the conviction, I think in many cases what should happen is the individual should be uh, either released or bail should be set, and the person should be retried now that the, the jury that had convicted them before would have had a, a key piece of evidence to consider so the new jury can reevaluate whether um, there is guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Josh and Rob, we need to take a short break here. Uh, when we finish with our short commercial, we'll come back and hear our final thoughts from our guests. We'll be right back. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. 
Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And I'm Bob Ambrogi. Thanks for uh, joining us today. We're talking to Rob Feldman, an attorney and one of the founders of the New England Innocence Project uh, in Boston, and uh, from Oregon, Josh Marquis, a district attorney and vice president of the National District Attorneys Association. Uh, Josh, any final thoughts on this I would like to respond to, like to what to, uh, Rob said at the end there. Um, the position of my office and of the entire National DA's Association about DNA testing is pretty simple and clear and has been since I first testified in front of the Senate on this in 2000, and that is that we support DNA testing at any stage of a proceeding, it, uh, no matter how many uh, technical deadlines have passed, if, in fact, it will, it will be dispositive of guilt or innocence. And, in fact, we would be delighted if the courts would adopt the standard that the Innocence Project uses when they vet cases. They're, he's right. They're pretty tough. They, they don't want to waste their time on... on on the many, many guilty people who write people in, in protest, because everybody in prison, if you ever talk to them, are innocent, at least of the crime of which they're convicted. They usually admit to being guilty of others. So um, the, the question comes, at what point do you, if, as as Rob says, what if it, what if, for example, DNA would show that another man raped the, the victim in addition to the defendant? Um, would, would that substantially change it? What if it's been 18 years? What if, and, and, should that case be reopened uh, if if all that we're going to know is that there is another perpetrator? Now, in that case, if there is another perpetrator you don't know about, probably the answer is yes. But, again, I, we have to talk about what the roles of the lawyers are, and I appreciate while well, the Innocence Project um, has good goals and, and laudable ones, the, the, the goal of a defense attorney is to make the state's job as hard as possible, regardless of the defense's guilt or innocence. Rob, how about you? Uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, I do. I, I think that um, you know, I think that the it's it's critical. I think that prosecutors and um, and law enforcement uh, get comfortable that the these DNA cases, these DNA exonerations, is not an attempt to you know criticize or indict um, the, the the problems with the criminal justice system. I think we all have to accept that we don't have a perfect perfect system. We never will. But I think in a, in addition to the exonerations, what happens to the individual and their families when they're incarcerated for something they didn't do. I mean, we all want those people out of jail if they're, if they're demonstrably innocent. But I think the larger question is, and the thing that's important about these DNA cases, is 
what is it teaching about the system and how can we make it better? And there are a number of reforms that people who um, follow these issues may be familiar with that have come out of these DNA cases. They're being embraced by not only the defense community and law enforcement, but uh, attorney generals around the country. And these reforms are good for everybody because they minimize the risk of something that neither Josh nor I ever would want to happen. That is, you know, us being involved in any way and an innocent person going to jail. You know, On that, we can agree. We, I mean, we've been talking a lot about cases where DNA evidence wasn't available at the time of the conviction. What about cases where the where the evidence uh, was tainted in some way or was discovered later or suspected later to have been tainted in some way? Uh, how much of a problem is that, and, and uh, have there been any significant cases in, involving that? What, what do you mean by tainted? Um, generally, you don't get a false positive on a DNA. Um, you can have a, a corrupted sample where you're not sure of its provenance, and that's a problem. Um, that's what Mr. Sheck, in fact, argued successfully to the jury in the O.J. Simpson case, that even though the DNA evidence was pretty overwhelming that the victim's blood was inside Mr. Simpson's van, that the, the way in which the LAPD collected it contaminated it. So, yeah, you do have to have uh, the, the process by which it's collected has to be done right, or, or you don't, like any other chain of evidence, if it isn't done right, then you can't rely on the result. And I think that's what I'm talking about. Cases where the evidence turned out to have never been collected in the first place or, or have been falsified in some way or, or the chain of possession was, was not proper. You, you raise, a, I mean, the, 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 a good question that comes out of that is there, and you may know this, there are many, many cases where DNA is just not available. I mean, we regularly screen out cases just because simply there's no biological evidence because it's too old, it's been degraded, or it never existed. And this is why I go back to what the DNA cases teach about the need for certain reforms. You know, such a small percentage of cases have biology where you can either use it on the prosecution side or use it on the defense side or use it to exonerate after a conviction. So the vast majority of cases, there's no DNA, no biology to test. So what that means is these reforms not only help the, the small percentage of DNA cases, but the reforms will help with all of the cases that come through the system and, and hopefully make the system better. Well, it's not at all certainly like it is on television and watching CSI. It's not. Well, uh, we're going to wrap up here and thank our two guests, Bob, Robert Rob Feldman. Uh, on his website, you can find at newenglandinnocence.org, and attorney Josh Marquis has uh, ndaa.org. And also, I, Josh, I, you write a blog, don't you? I do. I was going to suggest it's uh, Josh Marquis, lowercase, all one word, J-O-S-H-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. Dot blogspot.com. Great. Well, visit those two sites, and don't forget to check out our archives of our past shows at the Legal Talk Network. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Craig, and uh, it's a good program, and look forward to talking to you next week. Same to you, Bob. Thanks very much, and uh, thanks our guests again for participating today. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.